This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We continue to fight back for elders left behind in the COVID-19 vaccination campaign. During this second week of bookings for people 80 and over, the uptake was not nearly as strong as during the first week. This prompted a move to open the booking program for those 75 and older ahead of schedule. Very quickly, both municipal and provincial leaders scrambled to address the declining numbers of 80-plus individuals who had yet to sign up for a vaccine. Initiatives are being put in place to find those who've been left out, help them register, and assist with transportation to get them to a vaccine clinic. To discuss the unfolding dynamic, Libby Snymer was joined on Wednesday by Natalie Mayra, CEO of the Ontario Health Coalition, and Peter Trainer, a clinical social worker and grandson of 96-year-old Holocaust survivor Susan Rocklitz. Yeah, my grandmother Susan, uh, as you said, in her 97th year, uh, she lives at Bathurst and Eglinton, same apartment she's lived in now for, for about 50 years. Um, she is housebound due to both kind of physical disability as well as, you know, kind of the impact of dementia, uh, just on kind of her feelings of safety and willingness to go out. Um, and she has not yet been vaccinated. Natalie Mira, what do you make of the arrangements made for the most vulnerable population, which is the 80 plus, uh, are, are they the right ones? Or does this kind of point to the fact that, uh, you know, people didn't really consider what's necessary? Yeah, I, I'm with you. So I'm so worried about this. Absolutely. They are very much at high risk. And uh, particularly people that have home care workers coming in and out and the home care workers are not vaccinated yet either. Um, and so this is really a problem. I, one, I just can't believe that we're just figuring this out now. I mean, we're almost in April. Um, and there supposedly has been planning going on since December. And clearly that just never happened. It's infuriating, actually. And it's not just in the, at home. I mean, we're hearing from yesterday, I heard from a person whose mom is in a retirement home, she's 97, and she isn't vaccinated. And there's a number of new retirement home outbreaks, right? Now we're in the third wave. So it's been haphazard all the way along. I really think, I mean, home care is organized. There are case managers in home care. They can liaise with primary care, like with people's family doctors or community health center, nurse practitioner, and they can roll out the vaccines. I mean, there has to be one, this kind of haphazard approach did not work in long-term care. It took months and months, and still, the you know, the majority only have one shot if they have that at all. Staff are not vaccinated. You know, it's a mess, really. You know, one locus of responsibility and roll it out systematically. 
that's part of the issue. And I think it's part of the good news, too, is that there are different locuses of responsibility and some are doing a lot better than others. So Mm -hmm. that if you happen to be uh, served by by a unit or, you know, a public health unit or a health team or whatever that's doing really well, good for you. But if if you aren't, not so much. Now, Peter, what, what I'm hearing from you, uh, so your grandmother is not in a senior's apartment where they've had special teams as a pilot project come and, and vaccinate. She's mm-hmm. in an apartment in the community where she's been for a very long time. But, you know, I, I'm assuming that you have the wherewithal and that you're spending some time to help her. But, but even you can't seem to find what, what it's going to take. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we're we're quite a privileged family in, in this in this case, in the, in the sense that um, you know, I work in the health system. My sister works in the health system. My father worked in the health system for thirty five years. You know, we understand the system. We're able to navigate it. Um, I think kind of better than most folks. And yet, even you know, our efforts are, are not enough. Not only kind of not enough to get my grandmother actually vaccinated, but even to get any clear answers around how that will happen, when it will happen. Um, we hear stuff from her family physician on one hand. We hear stuff from um, other folks around these teams of, of paramedics that might be coming around, community paramedics. On the other hand, we hear things like you've just described, the Sunnybrook mobile team, and yet nobody actually seems to know who's supposed to do this. Um, it's pretty unbelievable, actually, at this point. Peter Trainer, a clinical social worker and grandson of 96-year-old Holocaust survivor Susan Rocklitz, and Natalie Mayra, CEO of the Ontario Health Coalition. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The following day, Libby spoke with Toronto's medical officer of health, Dr. Eileen Davila, and brought up issues and obstacles around access to COVID vaccines for those 80 and older. It's actually up to us how this race plays out. Uh, unfortunately, right now, it looks like the, the variants have a bit of an edge. Uh, part of our challenge has been that vaccine supply has been rather restricted over the past several weeks, and we are hoping to see some improvements in that. But in the meantime, there is still quite a bit of power that we all hold, given how much we've learned about uh, you know, COVID-19 over the course of the past several months. And we know what it takes to actually reduce transmission. It comes down to distance, distance, and distance. And for those instances where distance cannot be maintained, making sure that you're, you know, wearing, using a well-fitting mask, um, you know, and practicing good infection prevention and control, good personal protection measures so that you limit the likelihood of spread or, um, you know, of disease from one person to the next. Last week, you finally started vaccinating uh, seniors over 80 in, in the mass sites. And it didn't take long before you and other authorities realized that there were quite a large number of them falling through the cracks because not just the rate of, of, of the vaccinations, but also the signups, uh, were dwindling. So I know that there have been a number of measures to try to help those people. What is in place? And and first of all, were you surprised that that happened? Well, you know, I, I think when we're talking about the largest immunization campaign in the history uh, of the country, 
I don't know that anyone really knows what to expect. Um, you know, we do have some experience, obviously, with some large-scale campaigns, but nothing quite like this. So we do know from influenza seasons that generally the uptake is, is you know, in the range of about 30-ish, you know, maybe 35% of adults generally take up vaccines. And we know that 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 was something that we were thinking about and that we were aware of. Right. But so, for seniors, you know, it's much, much, much higher. It, it is in general, for sure. Um, but we're also talking about a new vaccine and um, the requirement to actually have to venture out to go and get that vaccine in a, in, in a time when there is some disease transmission happening. So I think there are a number of factors at play here. But, you know, the mark of a true professional practice is to see, okay, what's happening in the community? How are our efforts being received? And what can we do to adjust uh, given what we're seeing uh, in terms of uptake and, and what concerns, if any, people are actually expressing? So what we've done overall as a city is, you know, certainly tried to communicate as much as possible to have uh, people be aware that the opportunity exists where the opportunity can be taken up and try to facilitate as much as possible uh, access to those uh, vaccination opportunities. As well, we're working with uh, staff at Toronto Public Library. They're calling their clients uh, who are now eligible uh, to receive vaccine and encouraging um, their participation in vaccination efforts and answering some questions around that. We've seen the city put forward a transportation equity plan to support those for whom accessibility or mobility is a challenge. And I think these are just a few of the things that are out there. There are still more opportunities that we will explore, depending on what we actually see on the ground. Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen DeVilla, in conversation with Libby Snymer on Thursday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, some good news for the people of Brampton. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There were some sharp criticisms about the Ford government's second pandemic budget delivered on Wednesday, particularly around long-term care. Stakeholders, including the Zoomers advocacy group CARP, are disappointed that the vast majority of a $5 billion four-year investment to improve hands-on care to four hours per resident is being put off. In addition, the Ford Tories have not addressed issues around not-for-profit versus for-profit long-term care. Unifor President Jerry Diaz points out that many more residents of for-profit nursing homes have died after contracting COVID-19 than those in public long-term care homes. But there is good news from the budget, with healthcare spending rising by $3 billion, most of that to hospitals. And a new hospital for Brampton was announced, much overdue, according to Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown, who joined Libby on Thursday. What Brampton was hoping for was a commitment for a second hospital. We got that in the budget. The budget committed to phase two of Pill Memorial. As you know, the old Pill Memorial was decommissioned a long time ago. And so that building, that former decommissioned hospital is being turned into 
a full-fledged hospital. Phase two includes hundreds of beds. It includes uh, uh, emergency department. It includes 24-7 hospital operations. So it's uh, a home run for our community. We're ecstatic about it. And uh, it was desperately needed. You know, before the pandemic, we were, um, our Branson Civic was at 100% capacity. Um, 100% capacity before the very first COVID case. Right. But uh, you're getting an, a new hospital wing as opposed to... No, the- so um, that's where some people have made confusion. Uh, so the William Osler Health System includes uh, hospitals in Etobicoke and Branson. So there's Branson St- uh, Civic and Etobicoke General. And so... These are wings of the Osler Health Network. Um, and so Peel Memorial, which is in downtown Brampton, uh, is currently a decommissioned hospital uh, site. Right now, it's, it's an urgent care clinic. If you No ambulances go there. Um, if, if you go at night, it's closed. Um, they're taking that um, that building. We've, we've got a vacant land next to it, and we're, we're turning it into a full-fledged hospital. So this means hundreds of new hospital beds. That means an emergency department. It turns a decommissioned hospital into um, a full-fledged operational hospital. So we're ecstatic about it. Um, and, you know, I in, in municipal politics, I, I'm a non-partisan um, agent for the, for the, for the city of, of Brampton, and I've criticized the government where it's warranted on paid sick days, on the vaccine rollout. But on this, um, we shouldn't be criticizing. We should be celebrating. The budget was a home run for the residents of Brampton. This was what we were asking for. We were asking for a second hospital. We were asking for a med school, and we got both in this budget. Um, you know, I was ecstatic. Think about this. Uh, a hospital and a med school, um, it's, it's just great news. And, and, and I'm not going to engage in any partisan games trying to criticize it when, when I really view this as good news. Moving along to paid sick days, this has been a big issue for you, uh, and uh, the government has been very clear that they think it's a, a federal responsibility. So the federal program was criticized as being very, very hard to access and also taking too long to get money into people's wallets. Um, it was tweaked. Do you have any sense of whether it's working better now? No, so the federal program is inadequate. Um, the province points to the federal program as being adequate. The federal government says they've done their part, and the reality is it's inadequate. And so I hope that the province of Ontario and the government of Canada can come together and properly provide paid sick days. I don't care which level of government provides the mechanism, but it's something that will help save lives. The current federal program takes about three months to access, and when you're living paycheck to paycheck, um, and you got to pay your rent and put food uh, on the table. You can't wait three months. It's why no. It's why the uptake is so insignificant. Not to mention the federal benefit is below minimum wage. And so if you're someone, you know, struggling, struggling to make ends meet, you can't afford to to have a, a replacement check that is below minimum wage. And you know, the proof is in the pudding. You look at the contact tracing data from Peel Public Health. Twenty five percent of our COVID cases since August have involved people going into work sick, 25%. And so I know we tell people don't go into work sick, but let's not be naive about it. It happens. And if we had paid sick days, I am sure it would be dramatically different. The government has increased the child benefit. There's been some criticism of that because it's not means tested. Uh, What do you think about that and, and about, you know, whatever other measures there are also for small business? Well, you know, the help for families and the help for small businesses is welcome. You know, my more 
focused interest in the budget was on particularly the aspects that related to uh, to to Brampton. But um, you know, I, I think all families, regardless uh, whether they're low income or middle uh, middle income, uh, were challenged by um, the last year, and so I'm sure the help for families would be appreciated. Uh, and and the help for small businesses is desperately needed. You know, there's a lot of small businesses that are on the verge of a bankruptcy. So I welcome those uh, budget announcements. Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown in conversation with Libby Snymer on Thursday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Reviews were mixed for the speech delivered by federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole at the party's virtual policy convention last weekend. His message was about more inclusivity in the Conservative Party. In other words, broadening the tent and moving to the center. O'Toole asserted that climate change is real, even though the delegates did not go along with him on that. He made some timely suggestions, including a national mental health hotline. But does Aaron O'Toole have his own party firmly behind him, let alone the voters, as speculation ramps up for a federal election at some point this year? Libby asked this question of our Tuesday strategy panelists, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. Well, I can appreciate his desire to come to the center. I think most of us in Canada are centric, you know. Um, I, I appreciate his desire to do something in regards to the climate response. And he's in a he's in a predicament whereby some of his you know staunch supporters are denying the climate re- re- issue, and they don't want to even um, discuss the opportunities to look at alternative ways to reduce emissions. And he's taking it upon himself at, the, at least show some leadership there. I find it fascinating though that his response to climate is to you know look at carbon offsets. He even cited the provincial jurisdictions that are, 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 are responsible for it, and he used Quebec's cap-and-trade as a means by which to emulate what we can do across Canada, of which Ontario already had. I implemented that with my colleagues two years prior to us leaving. We were sourcing $2.7 billion in additional revenues, all reinvestments into green jobs, dollar for dollar. So those were important initiatives, which the Ontario government, the new government, took away and wanted to pick a fight with Trudeau over carbon tax, which was unnecessary. But at least O'Toole recognizes the, the need for us to address this issue responsibly. Will he do it? Will he be able to succeed? I think he's going to have a challenge because his base doesn't want to seem to do it. Karen, were you inspired by him? <laughs> well, you know, Libby, the first rule in politics, right, is know your audience. And Aaron O'Toole is in a pickle right now because his audience that showed up at the convention is not the audience that he wants to speak to. And that's the dance that he had to do at the convention. And that, you know, I think he wants to speak to the broader Canadian audience about the issues that actually matter, um, given the, 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 the multiple threats we're facing on multiple fronts. But unfortunately, his convention constrained him because he was dealing with matters that he didn't particularly want to deal with. He didn't get the opportunity to address the policies that he would have preferred to discuss. And so it's just one of those unfortunate things that he, you know, if he could just you know, erase it from his memory. I'm sure he'd like to, this whole convention experience, but it's a challenge that he's got to wrestle with because I, I think he is a centrist. I think he is pragmatic. I think he is, um, has the interest of Canadians 
at the forefront, and yet his an element of his party is holding him back. And, you know, the rest of the party needs to engage in a more meaningful way to give him that audience that he can speak to that is broader and, um, and more pragmatic. John, uh, again, back to the inspiration question. And, and he's also been, uh, uh, you know, very judicious or he's not putting himself out there very much. Well, you know, and that's that's a, always a challenge with any opposition leader, you know, given given on, on the best of times. I think being an opposition leader is a, is a rough job um, at the best of times. But you throw a pandemic in the in, in, in the midst and, of course, it becomes an even, even rougher job. And all I'm saying is that he is doing the best that he can. And I thought his speech was actually really, really good. I thought it was themed around securing Canada and the ability to be able to allay some of the Canadian fears about the security of, of, our, of our country. With respect to the environment, he used his, his most important speech ever, you know, given the fact that everybody was watching, not only the 5,000 delegates, but Canadians in the media, to talk about how, you know, this climate change debate is over, that climate change is real. And notwithstanding the fact that 54% of the delegates um, voted for that one thing to be removed, the line about, you know, climate change is real. The, the actual, that didn't make pol- the, public, uh, the government's policy, or I should say the, the party's policy flat- platform, because you need a double majority, which means not only the majority of delegates, but the majority of provinces. And that never really met the threshold. So, yes, 54% of, of, of delegates talked about that. But let's not lose sight of the fact that climate change was addressed in the party in the 2011, 2015, and 2019 election platforms, always talking about climate change being real. And that's really the key point. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Jan in Guelph phoned with an analogy for those who are hesitant to receive AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine. I just have a message for those people who are hesitant or will not take the vaccine. And here is the message. When you're out driving or walking, go through all the red lights, go through all the stop signs, go through all the do not walk signs and risk your life because that's what you're doing if you don't get the vaccine. Kathy in Toronto called about what she's going through to get her mom a vaccine appointment. So I have an 86-year-old mother who has Alzheimer's and is homebound, and I've arranged her through the Lynn, because she gets home care, for EMS. Apparently, it's going to come and give her the vaccine. Now, I've asked them, well, when do you think they're coming? We don't know. Um, I said, well, do they have a schedule? Can you give me a... No, we don't know. I called the MPP's office. I said, well, can you find out You know when the program is starting? She's on the list. They verify she's on the list. We don't know. We don't have any more news about this. So it's great that they have the program going. It's great that EMS will go to these people, such as my mother, uh, who's homebound, but they have to be organized. They, they, they knew these people were homebound. They, they should have had that list already set out with dates already going. 
Dennis in Brampton phoned with some good news on the vaccine. I actually just got my Pfizer vaccine at the, my local hospital here in the region of Peel. And I will say the, the portal for the region of Peel, if you can log on to that portal within minutes, you're got, you've got a booking and they don't ask you for health card information, any of that. They just tell you this is what you need to bring when you come. So it's, it was very easy. In fact, I, I was amazed. And that, that portal actually opened early. I was able to get on there on Saturday uh, morning and, and make my booking. Mary in Georgina phoned with her experience in booking an appointment. I just wanted to give some positive input. I wanted to let you know that uh, the, the booking for Georgina and Keswick came up last week. I went on the internet and I was able to book an appointment for next week. And uh, actually, three of my friends also got bookings for the next day, which is the 25th. So I just wanted to say that uh, there are some positive things things happening up north. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Anne in Toronto, who phoned about COVID vaccine access. I was out for a walk uh, the day before, and they were doing the the 80 and over, and uh, they have an accessibility entrance. And I was uh, really uh, hit home, and there was a couple... The lady was on her feet, and the gentleman, he was on a, a gurney, but he had his suit and his shirt and his tie on. <clears throat> and I just thought that was like, I don't know, maybe not sweet, but I mean, it was very real. And all I see is just regular people, whether they work for all trans, whether they're the security down at the Metro Convention Center, there are real people on the ground trying their best to get this going. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.